0: layer, Basslayer.
1: layer, Basslayer. 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 This is David Nage. And this is Amanda Frankel. And this is Basslayer. Uh, for our third episode, we are lucky enough to have the founder of Solana, Anatoly Yakovenko. Anatoly uh, came from uh, Qualcomm, where he spent uh, over a decade building out the kernel systems for the flip phones that we all use for many, many years. And Solana is addressing the transaction per second uh, issue that Bitcoin, Ethereum, and some of the other uh, cryptocurrencies uh, have been trying to address as well, too. I think it's super interesting what they're doing over there, Amanda. What do you you think? Yeah, I think
2: proof of history is really interesting. So um, that's kind of their... New method for being able to handle high transactions, which Anatoly will get into more detail for. But um, the idea of being able to order transactions and tell how long um, it's been since two events occur as kind of a way of validating transactions is super interesting. So I'm excited to get into it.
1: Yeah, the transaction per seconds that they're that they're talking about, you know, getting to 710,000 transactions per second comparable to you know bitcoin ethereum i think it actually you know if it's if it's real and it it actually is uh, viable it gives them the opportunity to have real commercial viability out there uh comparable to some of the other um proofs out there like uh, proof of stake and proof of work yeah
2: definitely so i guess that's um the golden question we ask in crypto is the the if it's real question so i know we've both spent a lot of time getting into technology so let's Um, kind of dive into this with Anatoly and see where the rabbit hole leads.
1: A quick word from our sponsor after Amanda gives our usual um, notice of uh, this not being investment advice.
2: (laughs) All right, guys. Uh, Remember, none of this is investment or legal advice. It should not be construed as such. Do your own research.
1: Today's family offices and hedge funds lack appropriate technology to invest confidently in digital assets. Lumina provides institutional-grade portfolio management software specifically designed for crypto, helping institutions like yours manage, bookkeep, and trade digital assets. Use promo code BASELAYER for three months free. Sign up at www.lumina.app. This is David. Hi, and this is Amanda. And tonight we have Anatoly Yakovenko from Solana with us. Thank you, Anatoly, for joining.
3: Um, thank you. Glad to be here.
2: Uh, so, Anatoly, I think it would be great uh, if you could just give us a little bit more about your general history um, as well as how you got into crypto and how you started Solana.
3: So I spent most of my career at Qualcomm. Um, if you guys ever had, like, these old CDMA phones, the flip phones, like a Motorola Razr. Um, they ran this operating system called Brew uh, that Qualcomm built and um, sold to Verizon and Verizon kind of rebranded it. Um, but there, I think at one point, 500 million these devices that were live and I was a kernel engineer that, that worked on Brew, so kind of worked on just about everything that had to do with the operating system. Um, it was a, a really fun experience uh, kind of broad check because we were at the time maybe the only true believers that one day you're going to have a handheld computer in your hands <laughs> and you're not even going to think about like your desktop computer um, and we hit, we actually hit 2 billion application downloads before there was even an iPhone like so you know if people kind of think about <laughs> the, the, the mobile handset right people think about the iPhone as the main one we actually built out and made all the
0: about um, the market changed from 80% like feature phones.
3: On some distributed OS parts and components. Um, and in 2017, there was this like explosion of ideas in the space. You know, there are people building like tags and like <laughs> crazy ideas like IOTA and, uh, you know, just about everything under the sun. And I started reading papers because, um, you know, <laughs> it's kind of what I do in my free time. Uh, kind of really getting into the um, the things that people were trying. And it kind of started, you know, my, my brain started going and I was thinking about the, how, like, we actually scale wireless networks, um, how we, you know, efficiently use spectrum. Um, all these things are based around um, dividing that resource um, and a lot of times dividing it using time. Like like TDMA, time division, multiple access, is kind of like the first modern like global wireless protocol that came to existence. So one day I had too much coffee, and kind of this idea of cryptographically encoding passage of time as data kind of <laughs> came about, and that was it. That was the start of Solana.
2: I love how we started with more Motorola Razors, which is just funny for me because that was my first cell phone, was a pink Motorola razor. Um and I was very proud of having it to, you know, Proof of history and the development of um, decentralized infrastructure. It kind of, you know, it it seems like those things mentally when we reflect on history are so far apart, but um, it's it's really not that much time that's passed.
3: Yeah, um, you know, wireless networks are like the largest network we have actually and like very adversarial. Um, (laughs) There's, you know, there's companies that are paid for, uh, you know, like public companies that build. Software and hardware to try to break into them. <laughs> so it's a it's a fun uh, fun environment to work in, and like in any part of it.
1: I mean, back in those days, it was you had to cram a lot of functionality into something pretty small, and you also, you know, today, you know, if I need a new iOS update, my iPhone automatically tells me that, and packets of information and data immediately kind of float. Come floating into my into my into my room into my phone. How did it work back then? I imagine having to do updates. Um, were... uh,
3: well, you could do updates. Actually. Like <laughs> you know the but um, we like build the operating system to run on like the sixteen meg uh, sixteen bit um, very low power ARM chips that could that were running at like two hundred megahertz. Um, but. That same OS also worked on these like eight core like 64-bit processors that came out later. Um, so we were very resource efficient about how everything how the software was built. What's interesting is right? Is blockchain, like especially Ethereum is this idea of uh, a single computer that is replicated around the world. So <laughs> I started you know as soon as I kind of looked at this you know and seriously started designing the software, all my embedded systems experience kind of, you know, came up like, hey, we're, we actually have a very hardware-constrained resource. Um, we need to make use of every every bit of silicon we can, you know, and, and be very price-conscious about how the stuff uh, blows up. So that that is really, you know, we have a we have a inner project. We have a cool innovation around how to make consensus more efficient. But the real innovation is like. What I call blood, sweat, and tears engineering—it's really optimizing over the, like the final bits and bytes, and aligning like all the memory accesses, making sure that the software is not doing things that um, make things slow. It's—it's it's very hard. <laughs> it's, it's, by hard, I mean it's like very, very time-consuming to do all this analysis and like really drill down to see where things are inefficient.
1: So maybe you can talk to us, just how did, so you you brought it up briefly, but how did this notion of proof of history come about? Where did it, you know, where did that, you know, we've we've seen proof of work, we've seen proof of stake, um, you know, we've seen d but where did proof of history kind of come about? How did you come across that?
3: So um, kind of the name came out of the the notion that, um, so, you know, the idea of like introducing time, um, into this distributed permissionless network. That was really kind of what, what started me down this path. And the reason why you want time is um can kind of intuitively imagine I'm sending messages to many different people, and these messages arrive out of order. And if they could trust the, the timestamp, like the clock in that message, um, everybody could order them exactly the same way, and they could come to the same conclusion about what these messages are, are telling them and they could do this without talking
0: to each other. So that's really the core optimization. Like what makes things fast
3: is when we can use time as a, as kind of a, a global reference
0: point in the system. Um, so adding a source of time was really what I was trying to do. And there's different approaches and all of them, I think up until the uh, proof of history required, a uh, a certain level of trust in the source of time. Like you could trust, you know, atomic clocks, you could trust GPS, you could trust
3: um, you know, cryptographically signed you know, timekeeping services. Google actually built these atomic clocks that they run in their data centers that their engineers synchronize and they use that source as their source of time. But none of this stuff really works in a network that um, like blockchain, like a distributed, decentralized, permissionless network where you know, you kind of treat everybody else on the network as a, as a potential threat. So eventually I just kind of was thinking about how Bitcoin works and how it's a, it's a way to mine, um, like a way to, to prove that um, you have a certain amount of resource by solving this puzzle. And what we're really proving is I have like access to this much computational power and this much, this much electricity to run it. And those are very physical, physically based. They're, they're really grounded in physics. You can't really cheat them. Um, and the only other resource I could think of, again, was time, and I started thinking about, you know, how do you mine, <laughs> how can you mine time? Well, it turns out you can use the same technique that proof-of-work uses, but um, do it in a way that cannot be
0: parallelized. So there's no way for you to take this computation and make
3: it run faster by using uh, more computers. So given that, you start generating this data structure that can only be done by a single machine, single thread, single core um, at a time, and this data structure becomes a water
1: clock. Um, and as this data structure grows, you know your water level rises, and that's your uh, point of reference in the network. I think that's really important because there's a difference there between, you know, proof of work, which is you want a lot of compute power, you want to have the cheapest energy with proof of stake. Also, it's about the nodes, and it sounds like there's actually, you sort of plateau with proof of history. If you get to X percentage of nodes out there, it actually starts to not have an incremental value. Is that correct? Um. Well... So there's two kind of things with a uh, with node count. Nodes nodes kind of give you this decentralization uh, aspect. That if the
3: parts of the network disappears, that because you're so decentralized, you have so many computers in the network that um out around those problems. You know, like the system keeps going even though part of the network is gone. Um, so for us, what doesn't degrade uh, is How fast the network synchronizes the data doesn't degrade um, linearly with the size of the network. So, we actually going to to our, it's not a deficiency for history, it's actually like a a feature, right? Uh, Because of our data structure, um, it self encodes time and events, and those events have now kind of this cryptographic proof of when they occurred. Nodes in the network can download the structure um, from anyone, regardless of uh, where it came from. You can literally, you know, send somebody a hard drive with a proof history ledger, um, and given the data structure, you can um, go back and look at it and examine it and see the the time and order of events when they occurred in that structure. And without actually talking to those nodes directly, you can compute the state of the network. So, you know, kind of like in that messages example, I sent out a bunch of messages. Well, instead of receiving them directly from me, somebody gives you like a box full of letters. <laughs> and um, in those letters, without actually knowing that they I wrote them or they came from me, you can actually rebuild the order of all the events. Um, and that ordering will be exactly the same as everyone else's. So that gives us the ability to scale the network in the, in node count, um, kind of like BitTorrent. If you guys are familiar with this technology, it's uh, Bram Cohen invented this way of, to quickly download data between many nodes by sharing the bandwidth between them. Um, so we, have, we use a very similar technique um, because none of the nodes really care where this data is coming from because they're, they're not relying on the, any... Um,
2: any direct communication to mean anything significant? I'll, I'll definitely plead the fifth on whether or not I know about uh, BitTorrent from my college days. But um, I, I want to focus in on something you said that um, anybody, it's like receiving a box of letters and being able to rebuild when those events occur. But I, I think something that would be really helpful for our readers to understand is, is what is determining the when event uh, an event occurred? Um, okay. Is it everybody sure. uh, provides a time and it kind of syncs? Like, how does it work? Oh, so this data structure, uh, proof of history, it's it's uh, this cryptographic hash function called SHA 56 It's the same hash function that um,
3: Bitcoin miners use uh, to, to solve their kind of a puzzle, the proof of work puzzle. So for us, the difference is that instead of looking for a specific value generated by this function, um, we are looping it, so we're taking its output and using it as the next input and running this thing as fast as we can. So because it's a cryptographic hash function, um, what that means is that you can't predict the output from the input. You actually have to run it to see what it is. And if you're looping this and you're running this you know, three million times a second, um, and you sample the structure, the, like you sample this process and record the counter and the, the state, These samples are bits of data that represent time passing because the only way to generate them is by actually doing this process, by spending time to do it. Um, So how you actually get a source of time out of this is you take these samples and you use them in a message that you're sending. And what you're doing when you're sending this message is actually taking whatever messages you receive and hashing them into this process. So now um, that 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 step of taking the messages and hashing them into this running thread modifies all the subsequent um, data that it's generating in an unpredictable, cryptographically unpredictable way. So that modification is what guarantees that that message was created before that, and uh, its own reference to the structure creates I guarantee that it was generated sometime after. So, kind of very high level way you can think of it is, I have a you know a newspaper like New York Times with a with a date on it, and I take a picture of myself with it, right? That kind of guarantees that I was alive after that newspaper was published. Um, but then I send this picture to the New York Times, and they publish that. right so that guarantees that um, that picture was staking before uh, that second newspaper newspaper was published does that that make sense so now you kind of have now you have this like upper and lower bound of when events occurred and that's That's, how you build a a source of time
2: so it's not like oh okay something occurred at exactly 12.01pm today in 4 seconds it's kind of Relative time within the network. You can say, you know, from from the moment the network, um, from the moment of network inception, um, all of these events occurred and they occurred in this order. And you can space apart how long it's been between events based on the count.
3: Exactly. So you can kind of guess that, you know, modern CPUs generate about 3 million of these per second. So, you know, we can say that these events occurred, you know, some, you know, like 10 seconds apart. And for us, we don't really care how accurate that is. Um, the network kind of adjusts this number running. What's important is that everybody that is participating interprets that data the same way. Um, and that is fairly easy for us to say because we can simply encode in the in the ledger itself that says that, that this, you know, when you're interpreting this data now, the network considers, you know, 3 million hashes to be one second. But maybe, you know, a year from now, it may be 6 million hashes.
1: Is this kind of relative to, you know, I, I I try to make it simple for people out there. When I talk about, like, plasma, you know, plasma, in my opinion, is a is a set of rules or a standardization to basically make things happen faster. Uh, is that kind of the same principle?
3: Um, I mean, on, like, a very high level, um, we have a, a, a set of rules to interpret this. Those rules as hardware, you know, new hardware gets shipped, right? You know, AMD creates a new CPU, so that might run slightly faster. So
0: when those things happen, as nodes in the network get upgraded, we can continuously kind of keep
3: track of that and what the right amount of hashes is to mean a second. But even even without that, it's not really sensitive to to, uh, to errors. Because all the events that are occurring on the network occur um, relative to the to the actual counters. So we don't really you know, in our code, like when we're when we're building this, we're not really worried about seconds. What we're worried about is does this message arrive within, you know, X amount of counters, that kind of thing? I, I
1: think for our listeners, what also might be helpful, and I'm going to let Amanda ask a few questions, but what's the implications here in terms of commercial use? You know, it. a lot of the projects that have been out there over the last year or two have been more academic projects that haven't necessarily gotten to scale. You know, there's been, you know, IBM, there's been a few others out there that have been, been able to try to get some commercial entities to use this. What are the implications for commercial use of something that's able to get such a higher through, uh, throughput for transactions per second?
3: Um, so, so practically speaking, for me, um, throughput actually is means price, right? Like, um, if you think about it, you know, a business that's running on chain that's using these transactions for like you know payments or something like that they're sensitive to a, a spike in price, <laughs> spike in price and fees like in Ethereum or Bitcoin. If, if fees all of a sudden go to 3 to $6, it's no longer like feasible to buy a coffee with it, right? <laughs> um, so if you really want to build a business around, you know, cryptocurrencies, you need to have a certain price guarantee. And if your capacity of your network is very low, you know, um, 2,000 transactions per second it doesn't take a lot many transactions for somebody to uh, start filling it up to the point where price increases and your business will suffer right you can no longer like service you know serve those functions So I think without a high throughput chain, we really won't see decentralized businesses grow and, and like actually function what you will see is maybe things like, Hyperledger where you have private networks that are really using this as a a database. They could, might as well be using Cassandra <laughs> and AWS. <laughs> that's a good point. I think the, um, the power of the power of decentralized networks is the fact that there isn't like this trusted set of people or trusted, you know, group that's coordinating things, that it is actually open and free to everyone. Like even in even in like the very simple applications, like um, you know, a smart light bulb. Like if you're if you buy this, a smart light bulb today, it depends on some like some company to maintain and run servers to keep updating it. If that company ever goes away, your light bulb light bulbs become useless. But if that was a you know a smart contract in Ethereum and all this stuff was coordinated through a decentralized app that actually gives you persistence that can function beyond the life of the company that created or their whims to run the software. And I think those products will actually work like intended, right?
2: So I think we've gone through uh, you know, quite a few benefits of um, proof of history, but I think it will be interesting to talk about uh, a potential trade-off since every system tends to, compromise on a few things. So um, is it possible for the network to be compromised by bad actors in the system? You know, for example, could nodes coordinate an attack to try to reorder transactions?
3: Um, so we are, um, just like Bitcoin, we use a, a
0: form of uh, kind of Nakamoto consensus, uh, but it's based around
3: commitment and time, time meaning number of hashes. A particular fork so reorder is possible but it, it, you can't do it with a more computational power <laughs> you actually have to uh, block the network for X amount of time such that their commitments expire and then they have free choice to, uh, to reorganize and those commitments grow exponentially as more commitments become available so um, just kind of like Bitcoin, as transactions get very deeper and deeper, the ability to reorder them um, get becomes harder and harder, and less likely, and harder in terms of time. That literally the network would have to kind of stop for a day to reorder something that was, you know, many uh, many confirmations deep. So this allows us to. Uh, to function in case of uh, catastrophic events, you know, like Yellowstone blows up, <laughs> the system can, ca- can actually continue running. But in the practical sense, it means that um, reorder becomes very difficult to happen with
1: um, as soon as the transactions are buried by, like, you know, 30, 30 to 60. If you could, Anatoly, talk to us about how the uh, kind of the incentive model or how you actually get people to be on the network and uh, you know, be a node on the system to be able to, you know, assist with the proof of history.
0: Um,
3: so proof of history is not a consensus mechanism, right? It's just their way of of keeping track of time in the network. You still have proof of stake that is used for voting. So to kind of like maybe cover some of the the
0: previous question the, the weaknesses in the network are similar to any proof of stake network, where if you acquire enough
3: tokens, you can kind of influence the network. You can start, you know, doing a denial of service or something like that. Um, but um, just like every other proof of stake network, there is a, a reward for being a validator, which means running the code and processing transactions and then committing your stake as a you know, economic commitment to not reorder. Um, so so those rewards are based on a, kind of a, a staking return. We haven't, like, fully locked down the actual, you know, direct, like, exact numbers in this,
0: um, but they're likely to be based on how much has been staked in the network and, you know, the number of participants, because we want to encourage um,
3: growth, We actually want a large part of the network to be staked and for us to support many different nodes um, to increase the centralization.
2: Um, So you mentioned that you guys are still working on the exact specifics of proof of stake. So maybe could you tell us a little bit more about the development stage of the project? I I know the original white paper, I believe, had Q1 as a launch, but if there's anything we've learned in crypto... That yep. you know, times of timelines, <laughs> so, you know, it's a little bit difficult to give timelines to developers because you don't know when something is going to go wrong and, until something needs to be fixed.
3: Yep. Um, so we've been pretty good about hitting our timelines. Like the first line of code was in February. By June, we had a multi node test up. Um, so right now, we're, our, our work is around essentially making it uh, Byzantine fault tolerant, um, which means dealing with all the fun stuff of rollback, uh, like rotation consensus, um, while maintaining performance, <laughs> um, which is hard <laughs> because every change we make does have, a uh, you know, impact on performance right now, our testnet on the Google cloud deployment, um, on their kind of 800 megabit network can it hit about 200,000 transactions steady state uh, per second. And uh, we actually have uh, an SDK um, for building programs locally and, you know, submitting them to the network to execute. And you can write kind of simple applications. We have a a simple tic-tac-toe app that you can use as a basis. Um, And, you know, when you run it on our chain, it feels like uh, it's not running on a blockchain, which is, I think, (laughs) exactly the goal is is to get... These systems working fast enough to where you don't really think about them anymore. Um, and our target for mainnet, at least on the engineering side, is still Q1. Um, seems like we're more or less getting there. Whether uh,
0: I think that there's still kind of larger questions to be answered, and especially being a US
3: project, that things are tricky uh, in the legal in the legal side of launching a new new chains, so we'll see how that works out, but um, we feel like we will be able to actually launch sometime in 2019.
2: Yeah, I would say it seems like more regulatory guidance on ICOs is kind of simply slated in Q1 from um, what we've been hearing on our side as well, so hopefully that regulation coincides with more yeah. guidance on what it looks like
3: when you launch a network. <laughs> yeah, my, uh, my wish for, you know, a Christmas wish is to get, like, some some regulatory guidance out of our, out of the SEC and the other the other regu- regulatory parties involved in the space to see what is actually okay, and what is not. Um, so far, like from what we can tell, um, they've really gone out, out of out of folks that have been, you know, kind of obvious bad actors for the most part. So. How
1: would Solana kind of fit with other? other kind of systems, other protocols. Um, you know, I, I talk we talk a lot about interoperability um, as, you know, the idea, you know, down the road in 2019 and 2020, 2021 is there'll be a large, you know, company like an Amazon or a Google uh, that has multiple different facets, but, you know, hopefully, you know, decentralized and leveraging, you know, crypto uh, crypto technology. Um, cryptographic technology so how does Solana fit with other or can it fit with other uh, systems right now what do you envision that in the future?
3: Um, So my my view is that um, like we're you know kind of in the early days of operating systems there were tons and tons of OSs but eventually a few dominant ones emerged and I think we'll see something similar here because there's really two two ways that so you can optimize these networks. One is privacy, and the other one is performance. Like, I think there's real trade-offs there for both. If you're trying to build, like, a fully shielded uh, privacy-first network like Monero, I think you will have to sacrifice both performance and programmability. But achieving kind of this simple-to-program environments are very, very difficult there. Um we're kind of taking the other bet is that we can build um, the most performance oper- the most performance, you know, global operating system we can because you know, for us the goal is to go from complete lack of privacy in the internet to going to the, the nominal privacy of
0: a blockchain which is <laughs> the 99.9% of privacy like
3: improvement. You know, when you think about you um, you know, Bitcoin has allowed us to be custodians of our wealth, right? Like, you don't have to store money in a bank. You can actually, you know, self-generate a key pair. You can be custodian of that key pair. That means that you, the money is with you. Um, like, Google and Facebook right now are de facto custodians of our identities, right? So, they kind of know everything about you. Everything you interact with on the Internet requires you to kind of log in with Google, log in with Facebook, um, and in a lot of ways, blockchain can actually solve those functions, but to do that on a global scale, like, you actually need a lot of throughput, um, so we can achieve, I think, a lot of the promise of blockchain by, by optimizing on this performance route, um, but that also means that uh, a chain like Monero, I think, will be more, more effective at shielding you For a very simple application like transferring money around, so that's yeah. I I, I guess I'm counter to this, uh, a little counter to this collaborative everybody will win model. I think reality is that um, things will be will work well for certain use cases, and like really two, two things you can optimize, right and The things that work that need that really need the level of monero privacy will work work, only work there, but the things that need global scale will really only work on Solana.
2: I think that's something we've noticed in general. um, I mean, not just in crypto markets, but in kind of broad spectrum human behavior is the trade-off between privacy and convenience, and I guess convenience can be used as um, you know a substitute for transaction speed and scalability here. you know people tend to care a lot less about privacy than I think people originally thought. you know we're we're in like a post Cambridge analytica um, kind of hack driven world where people's data is being taken apart. And it seems that um, you know only us people in in crypto with our tinfoil hats potentially care more about that. and And given that people are willing to compromise on privacy, you know in return for true scalability, um, and speed with, you know, some privacy components, it means that, you know, mo- models like Solana uh, tend to emerge as something that people are more willing to focus on than, you know, like I said, us people and if, with our kind little hats in the corner sending all of our money to the Monero network because <laughs> we don't want anybody to know, you know, I don't want anybody yes. to know that I just bought five dog sweaters on Amazon. Like, nobody needs right. to know it's my dog. And, and the it's, I
3: mean, the level of privacy that we achieve is the level of like Ethereum and Bitcoin and um, you know we can potentially enhance that too but the um, for us to focus on performance means that we can actually give that level of privacy for you to you know use your you know smart thermostat like it doesn't need to know your Google identity right you <laughs> can actually use this the anonymous mechanism to activate it um and I think um well, it seems like people don't care about privacy. I think they actually do, uh, given the option, um, especially engineers that build these devices would rather not be custodians of your data if they if they don't have to be. You know, Google might want to, but their competitors might not want to because of the liability of, of losing it, you know, of being hacked. Um, so I think there is actually, like, once once the options are there... Once you can actually buy things that are a Google or Facebook login, people will do that because they don't want to share the stuff with Google and Facebook, right? Like naturally, you kind of like, why does Google need to know my the temperature in my house
1: right i I think it's you're hitting me on something. I know we're getting a little bit away, but i i put out a a tweet today, you know talking about there was this note. From USV talking about infrastructure and about this kind of false narrative that we need to have, you know, rapid increases in infrastructure. And they talked about how apps come out first or they've come out historically, and it drives the infrastructure because it drives the demand. You know, you have the user base who are demanding that this app work better. But I think that, you know, kind of what Amanda was talking about, what you've been talking about now, is that I think in this day and age, after we've had phones, you were obviously building a lot of those phones for us for the last you know, 15 plus years. I think now that we've become more accustomed to having you know, supercomputers in our pockets, that we're really not acceptant of slow and hard to use applications anymore. It has to be fast and it has to be frictionless. So how does, you know, do we need this rapid increase in infrastructure to be able to really see crypto grow?
3: I mean, like, I, I just call total BS on that argument because the, the whole infrastructure for the iPhone was actually built by me <laughs> and, like, my team at Qualcomm. Like, we built out these, like, wireless networks to support data, right? We effectively built out the prototypes for these phones um, and got them, you know, got a very large, wide adoption of them to the point where there was half a billion people using them. And the first initial iPhone, if you guys remember, didn't do anything. It said browsing so it wasn't like there was a killer app on brew that everybody demanded needed to be faster um, it was just that Apple saw the the fact that they could take their you know expertise as a device manufacturer with awesome design and integration and leverage all of existing infrastructure and that actually happened you know like before there was a killer application before there was an Uber ellipse you know, or or whatever, you know, whatever you think the killer app is for the phone. Um, So to me, like, I think we have, like, you know, when when the space kind of came about, there was this explosion of, like, what if like, we could do, like, everything on chain um, of ideas, but (laughs) none uh, none of them were actually feasible because as soon as you try to do anything remotely complex with bitcoin or ethereum you kind of like instantly you know hit the wall like a computational wall and performance wall like nobody really wants to deal with a with a website that takes you know an hour to confirm something or 30 minutes (laughs) um so for us like i see i see that the the people that want to make the space um, a success and want to build on top of it, they're already working on, on applications. They're already building everything. Uh, we just actually need to give them the tools to succeed. And, you know, if they deploy an Ethereum and it, they hit success and it's too slow, um, they'll easily switch to Solana because that, you know, going from one to the other, that's just work, you know, that's just coding. Like, it's like going from iOS to Android and in a lot of ways a lot simpler because, code that's running on chain is really the minimal code.
2: I think think that's really interesting, and I mean, as the infrastructure in the space, you know, grows and iterates, um, I I tend to agree agree with you, Anatoly, kind of the the way things will build on each other will probably continue along that same line. One slightly controversial thing that we'd like to get into, I think that there's a a big issue and a big narrative recently around crypto projects having issues with capital and liquidity management. Um, I think we all saw recently that the the biggest developers for Ethereum Classic have shut down due to a lack of funding. Um, So what are kind of Solana's views on um, capital and liquidity management, Um, and, and how are you kind of planning for project longevity through the bear market?
3: Um, we got lucky, I think, uh, maybe because we the project started kind of late uh, after the peak. You know, by by February and like April, as as we got going with the fundraising, it was clear that I think we hit the peak, and it was <laughs> we we you know we had no
0: clue where things would land. So we basically sold things as soon as we could. Um,
3: so for us, we're well funded to like achieve all our goals. And a lot of that actually came as advice from uh Vinny Lindgren from Civic. He
1: was very adamant that <laughs> we do the, the right thing. What I was gonna ask is that, you know, you're you're building in the space right now. Obviously we've hit this winter and it's my opinion, I I've shared it with Amanda and I've shared it with others that we're gonna hit a purge where a lot of these projects were raising as utilities and they're actually securities and effectively You know, they raised in Ethereum, and as Amanda pointed out, their treasury management skills were not necessarily on point, and they might have raised 30 or $35 million in Ethereum, and they didn't DCA, they didn't, uh, you know, move to fiat, and, you know, now they're sitting on, you know, $2 million or less than that, and they can't really support their infrastructure. And so, you know, I'm not asking you for a crystal ball, and this is not really what you do, but you know, someone who's building in this space, what do you think is going to happen in '19? Do you think we're going to see a lot of these projects just go away?
3: Um, I think so. I think the project that did manage their funds should be probably looking at, like, the best teams and acquiring them. I think that'll happen, you know. Um, we'll see, like, I mean, the sad thing is there's probably a lot of really good teams uh, with great ideas that are now, uh, they aren't experts in, in, in managing like a high, highly volatile security, right? And they didn't do it. So I think that, that's kind of like the, the sad downside of that. Um, but the companies that did do this well, I think, should actually be looking, you know, which, or what is the best tech we can pick up and what is, where are the best teams? Um, I was in college during the dot com crash um, working in computer science. <laughs> actually, we had a startup with my my co-founder, Greg, the CTO, at the time in college. Um, That was interesting to see the dot-com crash, but um, by the end of, you know, by 2003, it was clear that um, the Internet was here to stay and really good companies were being built (laughs) Um, and growing. So like Amazon, Google, and a year later, Facebook just took
1: off. So I think out of this chaos, actually, we'll see some really great, you know, technologies emerge. Amen, I agree with that. (laughs) Uh, Amanda, do you have any more questions as we're wrapping up with Anatoly?
2: Uh, I don't think so. Um, It was really great to have you on. I think that, you know, proof of history um, is something that's um, potentially hard to digest when you're reading a white paper as an untechnical person like myself, but I think that um, we've done a good dive in and hopefully our, our listeners out there, especially the ones that are trying to dive into this technology now have a, a better understanding of some of the uh, more scalable uses of this technology.
3: Cool. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Uh, great, great talking to both of you guys.
1: And just for our, you know, for our listeners, you know, where can they find out more information about what you're doing um, You know, can they actually, you know, play around with anything? Is there any videos? Where, where can you point them to some uh, some good information about Solana?
3: So if you guys go to solana.com, dot um, com, actually has links to Telegrams or GitHub, um, you can go download the code. You can run your own testnet. You can verify our, our everything is open source, Apache two now. So you can replicate our numbers on your own, you know, deployment. You can upload programs if you want to our, to our testnet. Um, so feel free to, to go and play around. Um,
1: if you manage to crash the network, uh, submit a PR, we'll send you a t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Anatoly, this has really been great. You know, Amanda and I thank you a lot, and uh, again, for our listeners, though, I believe will able to go to Solana.com. And Anatoly, good luck, and uh, hope to talk to you again soon.
0: Cool. Thank you so much. Take care.